0: A President Trump with a Republican Congress will produce better results for the American people than a Hillary Clinton presidency will.
1: That's Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton speaking in early July at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. The Republican is a speaker at his party's national convention this week. In a time when many prominent Republicans are avoiding questions about Trump, Cotton speaks openly about why he supports the GOP's presumptive presidential nominee. This is Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. We bring you compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other events at the Aspen Institute. The Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a non-partisan venue for dealing with critical issues. Cotton Spoke is part of the Choice 2016 track at the Aspen Ideas Festival. The festival covers myriad topics including global affairs, health, technology, the arts, and more. You'll hear discussions from the other tracks in the coming weeks and months. But with the Republican National Convention underway and the DNC scheduled next week, the talks we're bringing you now mainly focus on domestic politics. We hope they serve to both inform and educate you ahead of the November election. U.S. Senator Tom Cotton sits on the Banking, Intelligence, and Armed Services Committees. He served one term in the U.S. House before moving to the Senate. The 39-year-old spent nearly five years on active duty with the Army, serving in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's known for being blunt and is considered a prominent voice in Washington on foreign affairs and national defense. In Aspen, he sat down with Jeffrey Goldberg. He's a national correspondent for The Atlantic magazine. Previously, he reported in the Middle East for The New Yorker. He's also written for The New York Times magazine and The Washington Post. The conversation begins with Goldberg asking Cotton about his position on Donald Trump as the presumptive nominee.
2: I mean, you have said that you will support the nominee. I don't think you've said you've endorsed the nominee, but you will support the nominee uh, for president. And I'm trying not to put too much spit on the ball here. But uh, your beliefs, as I understand them, and I think I understand them fairly well. We've talked about them. uh, Your beliefs about America's role in the world uh, stand in stark contrast to what I understand to be Donald Trump's beliefs about is the role in the world, and I'm not, I'm not being snarky when I say that those are ideas and beliefs that are, seem to be in development. Um, nevertheless... No, nevertheless, uh, you are a, a strong Atlantic Alliance person. You believe in NATO. Um, you don't believe that South Korea and Japan should be cut adrift and let become nuclear powers. You are for, you're, you're, you're not a protectionist. Uh, explain to me how you've come to the decision that Donald Trump would be a good president on foreign affairs and national defense.
0: Well, thanks, Jeff, for having me here, and thanks to the Aspen Institute for having me here. Um, I'm, I won't characterize Donald Trump's views or the Republican Party's views. I'll characterize my views, uh, which is a belief, as Ronald Reagan said, in peace through strength, that we need a strong military deterrent. We need a credible deterrent, and we need to be active and engaged throughout the world because we've been a positive force for stability and order, which as a continental nation with global interests is in our glo- uh, our national security interests. Do you think Donald Trump believes that? I believe that Donald Trump believes that America is an ex- exceptional nation and that we need to attend more closely to our core national security interests. Now, I may have disagreements with some things that he stated. You mentioned NATO, for instance. He has cited what many Republicans and Democrats alike have cited as a real problem, which is our European partners don't spend enough on their military. They don't meet their 2% obligation. You were in agreement col- with President Obama on that. And President Obama and John McCain and many of our uh, colleagues in the Senate. Uh, in the Cold War, it was a 50-50 split between North America and Europe. Now it's a 70-30 split with America carrying the heavy weight of the 70%. Now, I would not say we should spend less. I would not say that we should withdraw from NATO. We should urge, as we constantly do, our NATO allies to spend more. But Donald if,
2: Trump has said that if you don't pay up, we're out. Well, I mean, that's very different than what you're describing. But he's
0: also just said uh, that NATO needs to play a bigger role in the fight against the Islamic State, and we need to help Turkey in its fight against the Islamic State, which implicitly acknowledges that NATO has a role. I think Donald Trump has stated, though, like Barack Obama, like me, like John McCain, like so many others, that our NATO allies need to spend the money to defend their countries and to provide for the common defense. However, as a broader matter, I I am confident that America's national security interests will be more or more likely to be advanced with a president Trump and a Republican Congress than they are with President Clinton. We know where President Clinton has taken us in the past. We know what she's Hillary promised Trump. to She hasn't won yet. Secretary Clinton. Yeah. We know what Secretary We know what Secretary Clinton has done. If you want to know what Secretary Clinton would do, you could basically just look at some of President Clinton's accomplishments and she's repudiated them all. But we know what Secretary Clinton has done and some of the failures with the Russian Reset and the Iraq Status of Forces Agreement and the Libya intervention, uh, and we also know that it would be very hard to get Democrats in the Congress to try to rein in any disagre- when we have disagreements with a President Clinton. By contrast, with a President Trump. Republicans would still believe in some of the things I've outlined, and many Democrats would as well because they don't have that kind of partisan loyalty. You talked about South Korea. It's not a novel thing for a presidential candidate, or for that matter, a president, to suggest that we should withdraw our troops from South Korea. Jimmy Carter suggested that in the late 1970s, and he was not able to do so because a bipartisan majority of Congress stopped it. I'm just going to keep, I have to push at this a little bit
2: because it just strikes me that among other things, let's put aside matters of ideology and matters of sort of scattershot policymaking through tweets. Uh, it it seems to a lot of people who study foreign policy that he doesn't have enough knowledge about the world to be president. Do you believe that he has enough knowledge today to be president in the United States?
0: It's hard to say that anyone before they become president, or certainly before they become the nominee and then the president-elect and have all access to the intelligence that we have, has that knowledge. I, I am confident that once Donald Trump has some of the information I have, for instance, about Vladimir Putin as a member of the Armed Services Committee and the Intelligence Committee, that he will be much less friendly towards Vladimir Putin, and he will wait, not wait. So you're saying that you know more about international affairs right now than he does? No, no. I'm saying I have access. To, I'm saying I have access to classified information at the highest levels of our government. So, so I, I know I, I know more than most people do about a lot of things no, that are happening in the world. But what, uh, what world. I'm saying,
2: I'm, I'm actually paying you a compliment here and saying that what you've said is that the junior senator from Arkansas knows more about, for instance, Russia than the presumptive nominee for the Republican nominee for president. That doesn't sound like
0: a very healthy situation. I, I know I know more about what's happening in the world right now than Hillary Clinton knows as well, because she has not had access to classified information for four years. And that's not a function of me being a junior senator. It's a function We're of... We're not talking about just classified information. We're talking about analysis,
2: about reasoning, about having experience in the world, about understanding history. We're not talking just about what, what the committee is, what the CIA is feeding the intelligence community or intelligence committee. I mean, it's... Just help help me through this because I just don't I don't understand it. And again, it's not ideological. He he doesn't seem to have the preparation overseas to do this job. I mean, it's not a job where you want people learning on the job. Is that correct?
0: Well, I mean, most presidents would most presidents would say say that there is no job that prepares you to be president. Hillary Clinton, you can say that she has all the world historical knowledge you want. That didn't stop her from pressing the reset button with Sergei Lavrov it didn't stop her from advocating for what's become a very disastrous intervention in Libya's uh, civil war
2: i, I don't I, I want to go on a tour of the entire world so we're going to have to we're going we're going to go there we're going to go on that tour but but what's a, put aside hillary clinton for a minute what is the affirmative case for trump I, no, 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 no. We're trying to have a serious, think, this is a serious well, conversation. I'm really trying.
0: Here. No, I mean, I, as I said, a President Trump with a Republican Congress will produce better results for the American people than a Hillary Clinton presidency will. Certainly a Hillary Clinton presidency with a Democratic Congress. <laughs> and that, that doesn't mean that a, that a President Trump is going to agree with me 100% of the time. No one agrees with me 100% of the time and vice versa. But I'm confident that in our system of government, as you mentioned, the uh, Iran letter... Uh, in your opening remarks, simply stated that we have a separated powers system of government. That's very foreign to most countries in the world, and the Congress has great influence over foreign policy, just like we do over domestic policy. And I'm confident that we would have an America that is safer and more prosperous with a President Trump and a Republican Congress than we would with a President Clinton.
2: The the odd thing to me about this, and you know, you, we can draw a continuum, right? Uh, the the odd thing about this statement is that I I understand, uh, and we've spoken a lot about this, about President Obama's approach to the world, his beliefs about American exceptionalism and dispensability, and so on. Uh, if you put, you wrote the doctrine, apparently, yeah. The um, uh, I, when you look at the, the 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 Hillary Clinton's bias toward action, for instance, her belief in a strong alliance system, her statements about American indispensability, Uh, you are much closer to her than you are to the kind of neo-isolationism or protectionism, certainly, you didn't address protectionism and tariffs and and trade wars, uh, than you are to Donald Trump. Uh, So the question is, is this simply an issue? And it's fine if it is. Is it simply an issue that this is your party, this is what the people
0: of your party have chosen, and you are sticking with it? Uh, No, I'm not close to Hillary Clinton, trust me. Uh, and I don't know what we can count on in her words, uh, what she uses on the campaign trail. This is a woman who helped negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership, call it the gold standard uh, of trade agreements, and then because she fl- faced pressure from her left flank and Bernie Sanders repudiated it. Like, what does that say to you if you're sitting in Seoul or in Tokyo or in Taipei or in Riyadh or in Jerusalem and the security guarantees of the United States, which is largely to say the credibility of the United States Is a large part of your security. What I do know from
2: traveling recently to a lot of different capitals is that a lot of our allies feel that Hillary Clinton is a known quantity with a great deal of experience. And the question, and I'm sure you've heard this because you have a lot of foreign visitors, uh, there's a great deal of unease among our allies about an inexperienced person like Donald Trump with temperament issues, Becoming president of the United States, you've heard it. I'm do- I, this is not. Yeah, we had an inexperienced president, Barack Obama, and look what that
0: got us. Well, let's go to that. What? What did it tell us? What it? To, I what, mean, what this was- is. When, this is, you know, he went. I think he was in East Asia, maybe when he he said Donald Trump is very unsettling to our allies. You know how unsettling Barack Obama has been to our allies over the last seven and a half years. Again, you know, just because. Uh, Barack Obama says something doesn't make it so, and in fact, when you listen to our allies, and I've had heads heads of state tell me in front of other senators and congressmen that we need we need to get a new American president who believes in American leadership. Something something that's interesting uh,
2: about this conversation is that um, you. I'm not going to use the, the the usual labels that we use in Washington, neoconservative or not neoconservative. But you come out of a wing and a tradition of the Republican Party that is not in huge favor uh, across the spectrum after 15 years of hyper engagement in the Greater Middle East. Uh, that's fair to say.
0: Well, I'm not a neoconservative because I was right from the beginning. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I would actually, I would position myself, again, without speaking for the entire Republican Party, uh, in the uh, post-World War II bipartisan consensus that believed that America had a key role to play in providing global stability and order in Europe, in the Middle East, in East Asia, Um, and there have been Republican presidents and Democratic presidents alike who have helped carry that banner forward. That's where I would position myself. Um, As I said, I don't think the intervention in Libya was. It was well-considered. I think it was very ill-considered. I think it was imprudent, and it's led to very harmful effects. I, I want to get to each of those
2: in turn. Let's do the discussion of the Middle East by stepping back to 2003. And and you are rare in, in, in the Senate, rare in politics, for having two views of Iraq. You have your political view of Iraq, but you actually were in Iraq. And I want to ask you to to answer two questions at once. What were the lessons that you learned in Iraq about American interventionism, about the nature of America's role in the Middle East, and what are the lessons you've learned about what seems to most people, at least, the failure of this intervention to work, to deliver a stable, nonviolent, possibly even democratic Iraq? So so, so take them, they might be one large answer, you might have one, uh, two separate answers,
0: but take those in turn. Well. Uh, First, I'll say that that I continue to believe that the Iraq war is both a necessary war and a just war. Uh, I think most presidents uh, in office at that time, faced with the information they had and the decision necessary, would have have decided uh, to launch that war, as Walter Russell Mead wrote in his uh, post-9-11 book, War Terror, Power and Peace. Uh, That doesn't mean that every aspect of the war was well managed by any degree. That sounds Uh, like a bit of an understatement. Well,
2: no, I know. Seriously. I mean, and take us, take us to your own experience. So I was in
0: Iraq in 2006. In fact, I I returned from Iraq uh, just a few weeks before President Bush announced the surge, which many people look back in retrospect and think of just throwing more troops in. It was very, something very different from that. Something that most of us on the front lines, by which I would say battalion levels and below, knew that we needed not just new troops, but new troops to execute a new strategy and new generals to help lead that strategy, Um, and that was a long time coming. So from the very beginning of the uh, 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 post-major combat operation phase until the end of 2006, um, the war, the, the war effort was focused too much on trying to rapidly return power to an Iraqi society that was badly shattered uh, by 25 years of Saddam Hussein's rule. We should have focused on what we did in the surge, which is providing security to the people, which created a space for political reconciliation and economic development, and so forth. We knew that was necessary in 2006. We simply didn't have the troops to do so. Um, that was a very long and, and hard and difficult lesson to learn. I, I think that President Bush's decision to go against the advice of uh, his Secretary of Defense at the time, uh, every member of his Joint Chiefs, most members of Congress, uh, certainly all Democrats and a lot of Republicans as well, to be frank. Um, the Iraq study group, most commentators, was his finest hour. Uh, I wish you would have done that earlier, I think that we would have had more success in Iraq than we did. But there's no doubt that by the time uh, President Bush handed over Iraq to President Obama, the war was largely won. And you don't have to listen to me for that. You can listen to what Barack Obama and Joe Biden themselves said in 2011 when we withdrew all of our troops once and for all. They said it was going to be one of the great accomplishments of their administration. They said that Iraq was on the path to democracy and uh, to uh, peaceful Secure, and a peaceful and secure existence. Obviously, that's not the case. But so, but in terms of lessons, now let, let me say this. First, one lesson is. Uh, strength and toughness can never be underestimated um, if you are strong and you are tough then people are much less likely to take you on that 's true at the platoon level and it's true at the level of nation states we saw I saw units that were complacent they didn't pull proper security they didn 't keep proper intervals they were much more likely to be attacked than the units that were well that were disciplined and orderly usually at the beginning of their tours because they were still um, you know, ready to go out and take the fight to them. That's the first lesson I learned, and I still apply it to international security policy now. Uh, second, as I said, security is uh, the pr- always has to be the primary concern. You cannot have anything else in a society until you have security, whether it's security from external threats or security on your streets. You cannot have political reconciliation. You cannot have stable representative government. You cannot have economic development for too long. We uh, discounted the need for security in Iraq, simply trying to hand off to the Iraqi government, which wasn't ready to take responsibility for its security, and hope that they could do the other things. Um, and then finally, I would I would say that you know when you're out on the front lines and you're dealing with a foreign people and a, you know an alien culture that speak a different language, it teaches you a degree of humility about the United States's ability to create revolutionary changes in another culture and among another well, people.
2: That makes it sound
0: like you don't think it was worth trying. No, the security situation in two thousand three made it a necessary war. We for for too long Wait, why though? Because Saddam Hussein was a nonstop security threat from the moment he took power from the Iran Iraq war to the invasion of Kuwait. Uh, to the efforts uh, throughout the 1990s to harass our pilots in no-fly zones, to evade sanctions. Uh, everyone believed, to include Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and Joe Biden, that he was reconstituting his weapons of mass destruction program in the 2002-2003 time frame. Every Western intelligence agency believed that. Given all of those things and the attack the United States have just faced, I don't think Any responsible president could have made a different decision. Now, the aftermath of the invasion could have been handled in a much different fashion. We could have prioritized security from the very beginning, and I think the war would have been shorter, and we wouldn't uh, have—we would have been less likely to squander the gains that we had made in 2007, 2008 under new president. What about the that said? Like we can't. I mean, so in the in 2005, so in part because. That we didn't discover weapons of mass destruction in 2005, and the president's second inaugural, and then within the interagency bureaucracy, there was an effort to try to switch to the so-called freedom agenda about making Iraq a constitutional. Are you suggesting Western that democracy. was a cynical switch? No, I don't think it was. I don't think it was cynical, uh, and I do think that in the long term, the way we secure our safety is to have allies that are, are peaceful, uh, that don't oppress their own people, that are stable in their neighborhood, but. Arabs uh, are very different from Americans. A Muslim nation is different from a Christian nation. You know, that region is different from North America. We cannot simply take the concepts of American democracy in all of its particulars and expect to export it to any other country in the world. I mean, this the very all the early uh, federalist papers, you know, one through 10 or so, all talk about how unique the American situation was. We can hope, again, to have countries that are reasonably stable, who can control their own territory, to ensure that groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS don't use it for safe haven and launch terrorist attacks against us, who don't oppress their own people and generally look after our interests. That's, that's a more modest goal, though, than trying to recreate a Western liberal democracy around the world.
2: I, I want to come back to this, but two, two questions uh, that, that, that uh, presuppose. Let's, let's assume for the moment that you are president today. The first question is you have said, and obviously you're one of the most vociferous opponents of the Iran deal, you have said that you would negate the Iran deal, unravel the Iran deal. Uh, Tell us why and how, and what do you think would happen if you did that? And the the second question concerns the Iraq-Syria theater. What would you be doing differently to both contain and destroy ISIS and contain the Assad regime? But go do the Iran piece first. It's where you actually gain the first notoriety in your life.
0: So I, I wouldn't treat those as two distinct questions. I think the answer to most questions about the Middle East today is Iran. Uh, And Iran's malign influence in Iraq and Syria has helped contribute to the conditions that led to the rise of the Islamic State. ISIS is is a Sunni phenomenon. Yes, but uh, ISIS presents itself as the defender of the Sunni faithful against the oppression of the Assad-Iran regime uh, okay. or access in Syria and the Shiite militias that are increasingly dominating some parts of Iraq.
2: Let me sharpen the Iran piece. The, the Iran deal is not a, bi- a a bilateral deal. It's not the U.S. and Iran.
0: Technically, it's the, not even a deal since no one signed it. The
2: uh, The, the – there was the P5 plus one. There are many countries involved. And sanctions have come off in various in various ways in various places. How do you stop the Iran deal if you're a president or if the Republicans take over? How do you actually unravel
0: that or reverse well, it? So, so again, the, and you've heard... I don't of, want to ha- I mean, we've had but, the same discussion you, about... Yeah. You've heard me say this before, that the, the nuclear consequences of the Iran deal are obviously the gravest consequences because it will allow Iran to obtain nuclear weapons in what I think is the relative blink of an eye um, if they don't cheat Iran the deal. is further away from having nuclear weapons today
2: because of the deal though they were but, weeks away before the deal was implemented and now they're at least months away you're assuming if they're obeying the deal. I'm, uh, there are. Uh, you, look, you've read the deal the same way I have. If if the if the checks that are in place are in place, it is a fairly fairly difficult thing for Iran to do to sneak all, almost out. all of
0: which almost all of which fall off in ten to fifteen years, which is about the amount of time it took North Korea to develop nuclear weapons. But, it, but again, a, a again, deal again, was, like, before the deal was signed,
2: they were weeks away from actually the, being the close point, to breakout. The, the
0: point that the point I'm trying to make though is. That the nuclear consequences, while the gravest consequences, are more remote. The immediate consequences is the empowerment of Iran and its reign of terror and its malign influence throughout the Middle East. So you cannot divorce what Iran is doing in places like Iraq and Syria and Yemen and Lebanon and support for groups like Hamas and Hezbollah from the deal itself, because the deal helped empower Iran. It gave them over a hundred billion dollars. It helped their economy. It's only achieve. gotten 1.4 billion so far, isn't it? Uh, the administration is lying to you about that. I'll just tell you. Okay. I have access to the information. Uh, they're lying to you about How it. How much do they have? I'm not going to tell you. It's classified. But uh, it's it's Barack Obama. <laughs> you're, you're, you're teasing us now. Barack, no, Obama, Barack Obama himself said $150, million. John, Kerry yeah. 150 John Kerry runs around $150 John Kerry runs around saying three to five billion. I'll tell you, it's a hell of a lot closer to 150 than it is to three to five. Not to mention the 6% growth that he's brought to their economy when he can't get 3%. Not to mention serving as the chamber of commerce president for Iran running around Europe, now the United States getting them to sell planes and do banking uh, transactions so, with just, Iran. Just, so all these things are empowering Iran throughout the region and you can't untangle the consequences of that deal with Iran's influence and how it impacts our partners like Israel or Jordan or Saudi Arabia or the Emirates, or so forth. But Explain to me this if
2: if you <clears throat> negate the Iran deal, that means that Iran is not under the, the is not bound by the obligations it is said it is bound by in other words to 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 shut down the Iraq reactor to ship out most of the uh, enriched uranium. in other words, it reverts back within a very short time to being weeks away from nuclear breakout. doesn't that inevitably lead? toward a military confrontation between the United States and
0: Iran. Well, I'm not sure your, your timeline would be right under those circumstances, but what so what's happened since the deal is that the administration continues to conciliate and turn the other cheek with Iranian aggression. For instance, the seizure and exploitation of our 10 sailors in January, or the continued shipment of arms to Syria and to the Houthi rebels in Yemen and so forth. I would be much more aggressive on all those conventional fronts. And if Iran didn't like that and they began to- Even within the framework of the existing deal? Well, I mean, we were promised by President Obama throughout the deal that he would do all those things. He is not doing any of those things. In fact, John Kerry is running around, acting like he's the president of the Tehran Chamber of Commerce in Europe. They're doing everything they can to try to conciliate with Iran, which just goes to show the Ayatollahs that the US wants this deal more than they want it. So in the fashion of their country, they just continue to negotiate and haggle for new terms. So I would stand up to all all those conventional kinds of aggression, and if Iran didn't like that, then I would reimpose the sanctions. Like, it's that serious for our country. And I think most countries, if they had a choice between dealing with the United States, which has a $19 trillion economy, and dealing with Iran, which has an economy the size of the state of Maryland, would make the choice that's in their own so, best interest. So
2: you don't, you don't think that the negation of the deal would automatically lead to an eventual military confrontation?
0: Not necessarily. We would
2: have to be prepared for that. But Barack Obama said throughout the negotiation of the deal that he was prepared for that. You, do you believe that Iran poses the greatest danger to the United States today? And do you believe that Iran could warrant military intervention at some point
0: in the next couple of years? So the, there's different ways to answer your first question. You know, Many of our joint chiefs would say Russia because threat is a combination of intent and capability. Russia remains the only country capable of uh, nearly destroying our way of life with its legacy nuclear force. Its intent is increasingly malign. Um, the more urgent threat we probably face is a terrorist attack from the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda or similar groups. Um, But Iran is a grave threat for uh, international peace and security, not just because of the threat it itself poses, but the second and third order effects that it would bring to the security system in the broader Middle East. Who do you blame for the current conditions in the Middle
2: East? Uh, Do you blame... Barack Obama? Or do you blame Islam? Do you blame uh, George W. Bush? Do you blame Vladimir Putin? What is the cause of this rolling and complicated
0: turmoil? What do you mean by current conditions?
2: The disintegration of states, the disintegration of Syria in particular, the refugee outflow, the creation of ISIS... Where, when you are analyzing, we're trying to explain, let's say you're trying to explain to a college class in Arkansas what's going on. I want to understand, uh, I think I have a good understanding now of President Obama's worldview, what's going on and why it's going on. I want to understand your understanding of why it's
0: going on. Well, I wouldn't say that, that any U.S. president is primarily to blame uh, for some of those problems you cite in the Middle East. Now, a U.S. president can make those problems better or worse for U.S. interests. Um, again, as I said earlier, I think the answer to most questions in the modern Middle East is Iran, uh, and that goes back now 37 years, and the malign influence that is, Iran has had for. Are all you this for time. regime change? I mean, ultimately, the United States cannot be safe when you have a crazed, uh, radical, theocratic cult running Iran. Yes, and the Middle that's East can, a yes. And the Middle East cannot be stable.
2: Should the U.S. work actively toward mo- regime change, given your analysis? Well, so that
0: phrase now is associated with the invasion of Iraq in 2003 and in Afghanistan, which you said was necessary and just. Uh, I would not. I am not saying. I'm not saying that we should. That. While we should ultimately hope that the people of Iraq have a representative and peaceful government that doesn't oppress them and threaten their well-being by continuing its malign influence across the region, that does not mean that the United States or any other country at this moment needs to try to topple that regime militarily. But in the end, just like we cannot be safe as long as the Kim regime is in place in North Korea, we cannot be safe and that region cannot be stable as long as you have the ayatollahs running around. Come,
2: come back to uh, come back to the to the to the president and, and your career. We've talked about this a lot. What do you think this president doesn't understand about, for starters, the greater Middle East and and America's role in the world? I,
0: I think he first has a kind of philosophical belief in the ineluctable progress of history. You know, he's frequently hear reports from insiders talking about the right side of history. I don't think history has a side. History is shaped by men and women who are in critical positions and make wise or unwise decisions at key moments. Um, But uh, and that's why he's always willing to say, well, time is on our side. You know, Iran is going to pull in its horns. It's going to moderate and and so forth. But I think he views. He doesn't say that it's going to moderate. He doesn't promise that. Well, he didn't promise it in the middle of the debate over the Iran deal. But you're reporting. Has shown that he's believed that going back to his time in the U.S.
2: Senate. Well, no, I don't think my reporting has shown that. My reporting has shown that he's open to the idea that there's going to be eventual change. Well, I would say that your but report- so. Are, but so are you. <laughs> in, 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 if you extend the timeline but out, but
0: then that he that, that he believes not just with Iran but the Middle East and, and probably much of the world that America as often has been a source for instability and disorder. And if we would pull in our horns, if we would not be so active in the world, then we are more likely to see a peaceful balance of power. As you as he said in your article that we would have a cold peace if Saudi Arabia would just learn to share the Middle East with Iran. I think events have refuted that, not just in the Middle East, but in the European and Northeastern Wait, Asia. Now,
2: I just I just have to interrupt you and say, and, and I say this as a person who supported at the time the Iraq war, as you well know, but... If you're President Obama and you say America has uh, caused instability at various points in recent history, uh, can't you legitimately point to a war that hasn't really worked in Iraq and say, well, there's a, there's a pretty good example? You can point to the Balkans and say that was an example of America doing the right thing and, and, and stabilizing an unstable area. But, but why is it outlandish for an American president now to look back at the Iraq war and say, that was not really helpful to, to the
0: cause of world stability. I don't, I don't think it's an illegitimate view. I just think it's a wrong view and it's not proven out by the facts of history. And It's not proven out by the history of Iraq either. Again, when, when he took office, uh, Iraq was largely stabilized and the progress that we continued to make when we had a troop presence there from 2008 to the end of 2011 continued to advance. That's why he said it would be a great success if he has. Now I wish we hadn't had that three year gap in 03-06 to 06, uh, when we weren't focusing on security and we could have said that by 2008 before George Bush ever left office. But again, I, I think the history of the last hundred years Certainly the last 70 years is a history of U.S. leadership that's promoting stability and order throughout the region and that we should be proud of that and we should try to continue that in the 21st century. By the way, that's something that Hillary Clinton once told me almost verbatim,
2: just to just to continue my argument that you're actually you're 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 you're, you're and, and I'm I, sorry, I have she to get
0: something right every now and then.
2: <laughs> well, that's a pretty big thing. That, that's a pretty big thing. No, no, no. It, it, it's, it's, and I, I come back to this. I, I'm sorry. You, you're, you're one of the few people in the Senate who has the sophisticated enough knowledge of, of international affairs and America's role in the world to, to, to do this. When you say that, that is not something that Donald Trump has ever said, I don't think. I mean, coming back, you know, I don't think he has articulated a view uh, of America as the great, uh, in the great confrontation of fascism and communism, that we we won the 20th century and that we are the indispensable, exceptional nation. And we have burdens that come from indispensability and
0: exceptionalism. Remember, we don't do this. For a charity case, we do this because it's in our own security interest. Like we don't, we don't have troops today still in Italy and Germany and South Korea and Japan because we're charitable. We well, have on, it because it's on, in you, our security you're not interests. at all
2: afraid that Donald Trump would pull out those troops from Italy and Germany because they cost too much. I mean, he's kind of said it.
0: I'm not afraid that he would uh, remove those troops from Europe um, in, a, in some. Now, he might relocate them, and it might even be wise to relocate them in, inside of Europe, further to NATO's eastern flank. But no, I don't, I don't think he will do that. Um, and again, this is, not, this is not unprecedented in American foreign policy. Jimmy Carter tried to do this, and the Congress stopped him. Jimmy Carter did not want to pass the Taiwan Relations Act, and Congress rammed it down his throat in less than a month. Barack Obama did not want to sign the Sassada sanctions bill against Iran, and he had to when the Senate passed it unanimously. The Congress, and especially the Senate, has a big role to play in U.S. foreign policy. And if Donald Trump is elected president, I will support him when he is right, and I will try to change our direction when he is wrong.
2: Come back to this, this question you and I have talked about before about whether the American people are tired of intervention or are tired of uh, our global role. I have to imagine, and we've talked about this in the past, I don't have to imagine it, that you worry that Americans uh, no longer understand the traditional role that this country has played. What do, you, what do
0: you ascribe this fatigue if you actually accept the idea that this fatigue exists well, it's not surprising that the people uh, might be war weary when the commander-in-chief seems to be the weariest of them all. Uh, it takes presidential leadership to sustain an effort like the Iraq War, the Afghanistan War, or the campaign against the Islamic State, and President Obama simply is not an effective and uh, continuous advocate on behalf of these critical President necessary-
2: Obama has killed more terrorists than any American president in history. Is that fair or unfair? Is that a true statement or a not true statement?
0: Um, I don't know factually if it's true or not. Uh, I mean, George Bush, George Bush forty three would be up there as well. It's not really a relevant comparison. Well, either. I mean, I mean, because you're you're you're
2: you're, uh, you're saying you're going to vote for but a the, guy who has suggested that Obama is an ISIS sympathizer. No, but take so you, it's quite it's quite it's quite one thing to say that somebody insinuate that somebody is an ISIS sympathizer and look at the record, which is, and, and you know your coll- your colleagues far to the left of you are angry at President Obama for waging a relentless drone war against terrorists and collateral and people who are in, in the way. Uh, so so I, I don't understand
0: how you can thread that particular needle. So, so, com- so compare the efforts of President Bush uh, in 2007 with the Iraq surge to President Obama in late 2009 and 2010 and the Afghanistan surge. Compare the number of speeches that they gave, compare the number of interviews they gave, read Bob Gates' memoir since he was present for both of them. Uh, it's just a radically different approach. Barack Obama clearly uh, felt that he was being boxed in by his generals, with which I do not agree. His heart wasn't in that effort uh, and he announced it in one speech and then he moved back to Obamacare and Dodd-Frank and everything else that was on the radar. and then we talked about it he didn't talk about victory he didn't talk about winning he talked about ending the wars do you think that's what i mean to have
2: a victory over isis yes i do how
0: we win they lose how no how um so
2: there's a lot of things i mean you can shut the internet down and 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 that would stop most the activation of lone wolves but that (laughs) doesn't seem feasible
0: if the Islamic State is losing and the existence of a Islamic State adherent in Raqqa or Mosul is miserable, they don't have a sex slave and they don't get to live out every grotesque, violent fantasy they've ever had, but rather they live a lonely, isolated, miserable existence until they get killed by an American bomb or an Iraqi rifle, then you're going to have a lot less inspired attacks because that's not very inspiring.
2: Uh, talk a little but, bit... But... Yeah.
0: but, but but again, the, the president has a unique role in our society to sustain support, not just for current operations, but for our military as well, to go to another point of strong disagreement I have with President Obama and President Clinton, that we've had a, you know, seven years of dramatic cuts to our military budget, which Bob Gates uh, um, catalogs in detail in his uh, memoirs, and now Hillary Clinton, like Barack Obama, has endorsed the view that a dollar of defense spending needs to be matched by a dollar of domestic spending. If
2: you had your druthers,
0: how much would you grow the military and where would you grow the military? What would your budget be? So I think a good baseline to start is Bob Gates's last budget. Uh, And I say that for two reasons. One, um, he was known as a very efficient manager, had cut a lot of uh, waste and inefficiency out of the Pentagon. And he submitted that budget uh, before the Budget Control Act took effect. Before, you had more arbitrary cuts on top of the four years of efficiency reductions that he had faced. Um, Second, the world is a lot more dangerous now, five years on, than it was when Bob Gates submitted that budget uh, in the winter of 2011, and if you look at that budget, it suggests that we're about 75 to 100 billion dollars under where we should be in our base defense budget. Now, the military can't program all that money in one fell swoop, but I do think that the next president should submit an uh, an emergency supplemental request early next year for every single dollar that the military can program for the remainder of that fiscal year, and then we should continue to build up our capabilities, because the surest way to make sure that we don't have another mass uh, casualty terror attack, or that we don't have to fight another war like Iraq and Afghanistan, is to have a military that is second to none and capable of deterring all of our adversaries from ever threatening our interests. Do you think our military is not currently great? our Our military, plainly, is the most capable military Uh, in the world, Um, but our military has suffered dramatic budget cuts. The size of our Air Force, I'm sorry, the size of our Army and our Marine Corps has fallen dramatically. The number of ships, the number of uh, aircraft that our Navy and our Air Force have have fallen dramatically. We are underfunding modernization programs simply to pay for training of troops that we're sending overseas now. Our nuclear forces, are vastly underfunded and all the bills to modernize our nuclear forces, which are the ultimate deterrent towards our enemies are coming due in the next 10 to 15 years. So while our military is still second to none, it also, is the capability gap is closing, and it's a very bad thing in security competition to beat your opponent by a a nose at the finish line, because that encourages them to compete even more. You want to beat them by 17 furlongs. You're gonna think I'm obsessive for saying this, but you, know a lot
2: about our nuclear force. You know what a nuclear triad is. I don't understand how you could be comfortable with someone who as, as recently as three months ago didn't know what the nuclear triad was. How does, I just, just, just help me, help me, help me. <laughs>
0: I think Donald Trump is well aware of what the triad is. I I do think that in a way, though, uh, he is correct that you can't prioritize a leg of the nuclear triad. There's not one that's more important than the others. You have to have all three. They have to be well-funded. All three are desperately in need of modernization, as are our warheads. So that is a bill that is coming due soon. It's a big bill in absolute terms. It's not a big bill in relative terms. It's only three to five percent of our defense budget. Some people would say, why would we spend even that much when we don't use these weapons? I would rejoin that we use them every single day.
2: Talk about, it's a continuing controversy, how we talk about the enemy we're fighting, putting Iran aside and going on the Sunni side for now. How do you characterize
0: the enemy we're fighting? I mean, they're radical Islamists. There aren't many of them compared to the number of Muslims in the world, 1.6 billion, but you're dealing with the law of large numbers here. You know, if you just go, you know, 10% of that susceptible to radicalization, 10% of that susceptible to violence, 10% of that who might actually commit violence. But You're still dealing with a large number the of people. Issue, on the labeling issue,
2: specifically on the labeling issue, you have the heads of various Arab intelligence agencies and, and heads of Arab ally states asking... The president asking the administration not to use the word Islam in the description because they fear that that grows the pool that Muslims who are not affiliated with ISIS will find that alienating and be drawn to more dangerous messages. If if they told you that, would you cease to use the term Islam,
0: or is there something I, else going on? I would I would respectfully disagree. It's hard to defeat an enemy if you can't define the enemy. That again, that doesn't mean that the enemy is 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 if Islam you're Muslim, or If as your a Muslim whole,
2: ally asks you to do it, you still wouldn't do it.
0: Well, I mean, our Muslim allies have responsibility to help trying to counter political Islam themselves. And some of them have taken on that effort, like President al-Sisi in Egypt, and we need to support them in those efforts. Because ultimately, what we need to live in safety and security is a peaceful Muslim world in which Muslim voices, not Western voices like ours that are not gonna be effective, but Muslim voices, respected leaders, whether they're political leaders or religious leaders or business leaders, are identifying problems in their communities and their countries and stopping them before they can rise to power. Uh,
2: There's an interesting phenomenon that's been going on the last several weeks in in which uh, Republicans, many Republican elected officials, uh, because of the unique nature of this current... Uh, Presidential cycle uh, have been making themselves scarce and not facing questions and answering questions, and so I want to thank Senator Cotton very much for putting himself out and and answering all these questions. Thank you very much for doing that. Thank you, Jeff.
1: Thank you all. Thanks. Senator Tom Cotton is a Republican from Arkansas. He spoke with Jeffrey Goldberg, a national correspondent for The Atlantic. At the top of the show, we mentioned we'd be bringing you episodes on topics other than politics. We promise that's not too far in the distant future. For now, we're focusing on bringing you discussions from the Choice 2016 track at the Aspen Ideas Festival. It explores this year's elections, especially the one for the Oval Office, from every angle, the candidates, the issues, and the votes. Find out more at aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on iTunes or your favorite podcasting service. Discover more about the Aspen Ideas Festival at aspenideas.org. Follow the festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and myself and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs. Thanks for listening.